Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. Morning, church fam. So the theme of this morning seems like everybody that I greeted is tired and busy this week. So it just seems to be that, that kind of week for some reason. Uh, I've felt that myself in the past couple weeks, almost being more busy than I probably should be, but there's three things I've been dedicated to no matter what. So doesn't matter how busy I get, number one, my time with Jesus is just a non-negotiable, uh, have to spend time with him. Number two, it's the time that's dedicated to my wife and my girls, so there are certain days that I have to set aside just to be with them. And then the third thing is my time of getting to the gym, because if I don't, I might kill somebody. So... I go and I work out, but that the third one is the most trivial of all, so if I'm going to make an exception, because life gets super busy, that would be the one, but I hate it. So if I go more than two days without working out, I start to go stir crazy, my wife will tell you, she's like, oh man, you always have to be moving, doing something. I'm like, no, I've been at the gym in the last two days. Well, a couple weeks ago, I decided that because I had to cut one of my gym times short, and then I had to miss the following day, the third day, I was going to do three days worth of workouts in one day. I'm going to lift heavier, I'm going to lift longer, and I come home and I'm like the hunchback in Notre Dame. Totally popped something in my L5 and my low back. It was fantastic. All that to be said, I bring that up because this morning, I'm not going to put you through physical exercise, but we got some mental exercise we're about to go through. We're in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. It's this little thing that we call the millennium. It's the thousand-year reign of Christ, and... I have a very definitive stance that I take and that is a part of our doctrinal statement of faith on the millennium. Um, if you're not familiar with the different views of the millennium, I'm going to give you about a five-minute mini-seminary course on what the views are of the millennium, um, where I stand and teach as your pastor, and then what is also in our doctrinal statement of faith. So there are three views on that thousand-year reign of Christ that we're about to read about. One is called amillennialism, one is called postmillennialism, one's called premillennialism. Amillennialism, ah means not, and then millennialism is the millennium, meaning not a real millennium. The, be the belief of amillennialism is that there isn't an actual thousand year reign of Jesus on the earth. The belief is that Jesus is actually reigning in our hearts spiritually. So the things that you read about in Revelation are more spiritualized or allegorized. Amillennialists would be what we call idealists or preterists. An idealist just believes that a lot of the events, again, that you read about in Revelation aren't actual real events. Those um, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments are just figurative um, or allegorical. If you're a preterist, when you read the book of Revelation, the teaching is that all of those things that you read about already happened in A.D. 70, which if you don't know what happened in A.D. 70, there was this massive destruction of the temple at the hands of the Romans. Many of the Jews were killed. So the belief in amillennialism is that that actually points back to what happened in A.D. 70. Now, this view of amillennialism that I just spoke about actually didn't even come into existence until about the 1500s. It was brought about by the Roman Catholic Church. So what happened is the Protestant reformers were telling people all over the world, and especially the Catholic Church, that your pope is the Antichrist, 
the Catholic Church is Babylon that you read about in the book of Revelation. So in order to get around that or not look like the bad guys, they developed this idea of what we call preterism. No, actually, all those events already took place. They happened in A.D. 70. So therein lies what amillennialism is. There's multiple issues with the view of amillennialism. Number one, the book of Revelation wasn't written until A.D. 95. I don't think John was looking back on events as history. He was writing about them as future events. Here's the other issue. In the book of Revelation, we read that Jesus is going to literally visibly return, that Satan is going to visibly be defeated, that there's going to be an actual great, great white throne judgment, that there are going to be these judgments called uh, the seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments, all of which we have not yet seen take place and all of which are going to actually take place uh, literally and visibly. Now, the second view is what's called post-millennialism. Post means after the millennium, which means that the, the belief there is that Jesus is going to return after the millennium. Now, again, the belief in post-millennialism is, is not a, thousand, a literal thousand-year reign of Christ, but the millennium is already happening now. As believers go and share the gospel, things are going to get better and better, and then once the kingdom gets established, Jesus will return. I'm just going to give you a, a couple of very um, noticeable problems with that belief. Number one, we had some wars called the Revolutionary War and the Civil War, World War I, World War II, that tells me that things are not getting better and better as time goes by. Even though, yes, we are outspreading the gospel, things are not getting better and better, and that actually seems to fly in the face of what the scriptures teach. So right off the bat, I'm already spilling the beans. I, I don't stand on amillennialism or post-millennialism. The third view is what we call pre-millennialism. That means that there's going to be an actual, literal seven-year tribulation. It's actually going to happen. I think we as a church get raptured out of here before the tribulation. This horrid seven years of what is like hell on earth take place. Then at the end of the seven years, when two-thirds of the Jews have been killed, Jesus will return, and that's when the third that is actually left will bow their knee, they will cry out to the Messiah, and then they will enter into the millennium with Jesus. Remember in Revelation chapter 19 what happened when he returned? He wiped out all unbelievers. So the only ones entering into the millennium are going to actually be believers to start. So that's where we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 20, just so we're all super clear the way that I teach the book of Revelation is that these are actual events that are really going to happen in the future. That means that this thousand-year reign of Jesus that we're about to read about in these ten verses are actual events that are going to take place. You're actually, I'm actually going to get to come back with Jesus. We're going to get to be co-heirs and co-rulers with him. I will tell you two things. Number one, I think that is the absolute most consistent with Scripture because from everything that we see in scripture, everything else that God has written about up to this point have been actual literal events. God literally created the world in a literal six days, in 24 hour, uh, six 24 hour days. God made literal promises to the nation of Israel that he kept. God was literally born through a virgin, literally in the town of Bethlehem, literally betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, literally killed on, on a cross, crucified on a cross, and literally rose again on the third day, which guess what that tells me? Jesus is going to literally come again and set up an actual kingdom. That's a good reason to celebrate. We should be excited about that because right now with the world being the mess that it's in, we can know that Jesus is still on the throne. We're about to read about that. You just got a mini seminary course. So I have to ask, just like I did with first service, are you all still awake? 
Now you have to prove it. You have to stand up because we're going to read from the Word of God. Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. This is the thousand-year reign of Christ. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And after the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Thanks, gang. So the one big idea, the overarching idea that we're about to see is that Jesus reigns. He reigns over Satan, he reigns over history, and he reigns over humanity. And so what I'm going to do with the rest of our time together is I'm just going to show you from three smaller passages or three smaller chunks that we have proof from Revelation 20 that Jesus reigns over Satan, Jesus reigns over history, and that he reigns over all of humankind. So let's take a look at the proofs that Jesus reigns. And before I even get there, let me tell you why this passage would have been such an encouragement to those that John was writing to. They're underneath the thumb and the rule of Rome. They're being oppressed, they're being beaten, they're being killed. Um, John's own disciple, Polycarp, probably between the ages of 80 and 90, was put inside of a hollowed out brazen bowl that was then lit, lit on fire and he was boiled to death. But all the while he said, I will never bow my knee to any king other than Jesus because I know without a doubt that I will join him in heaven and that I will also get to be a co-heir or co-ruler with him on the earth someday during that thousand-year reign. Polycarp believed everything that John the Baptist wrote, which came from the hand of Jesus. I'm not Polycarp, but I will tell you, I believe that everything, I believe everything that John wrote, everything that came from his hand because it came from Jesus. And so this morning we're going to get to take a look at our king, the one that's worthy of dying for, because we will get a brand new life, which we're going to talk more about this morning. So here's the first proof that Jesus reigns. It's in the first three verses, so if you would, take your Bibles, go back to Revelation 20, uh, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Please note, Satan will be removed. He's going to be removed by an angel for a thousand years. 
In Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we hear that Satan is cast out of heaven. He no longer has access to heaven like he does right now. Right now, he can go to heaven and accuse us before God the Father. Now, remember, the good news is we have the greatest defense attorney ever. His name is Jesus, who stands in our defense. But right now, he still has direct access to heaven. One day, according to Revelation 12, 9, he'll be cast out. But according to Revelation chapter 20, he'll even then be cast down from the earth. He won't even be allowed to be here. He will be cast into the abyss. Why? Well, verse 3 says, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Satan will no longer be able to deceive mankind during that thousand-year reign of Christ. Which is going to get interesting, because as we're about to see, even without Satan here deceiving mankind, they still rebel. We'll get there. It is crucial to note, though, that Satan's greatest tactic is deception. Remember in the Garden of Eden, what did God do with Adam and Eve? Yeah, I know God gave you the perfect relationship with him, and I know he gave you the perfect relationship with each other. I know he gave you all this food in the garden you can eat without getting heartburn or getting sick or getting fat or any of those things, but God's still holding out on you. In fact, he knows that if you eat of this tree, the one that he told you not to eat of, the only reason he told you not to eat of it is because when you do, you'll become just like him. And has that not been mankind's problem ever since the fall? We want to be the God of our own universe. We want to dictate. Think again about the deception that Satan has brought. It's your body. You can sexually do with it whatever you want. If you want to change into a different gender, it's your body. Go ahead. Hey, ladies, if you're pregnant but you don't want that mass that's inside of you, go ahead and just get rid of it because it's your body. And anyways, it's just a mass. These are the deceiving words that Satan uses. Marriage? Man, I know that's tough, but if your husband or your wife doesn't give you exactly what you're looking for, just get a divorce. It's no big deal. Again, these are the decept deceptive words that Satan uses. Let's take one that might not seem like as much of a sin, but is really an issue. Well, you know, I know you're really busy, so getting in God's word, there's just not time for that. And even if you did pick it up, you're probably not going to understand it anyways, so why bother? These are all the deceptive words that Satan uses. But at some point in time, he's going to be cast into the abyss for a thousand years. That great cosmic criminal is going to be in prison. He's going to be in prison for what's going to be the equivalent of about 12 lifetimes. And yet, people are still going to rebel. Okay, we'll get there. Look with me at the second proof that Jesus reigns and rules. It's in verses 4 through 6. It says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The saints will reign with Jesus for a thousand years. Again, don't forget, I believe this is absolutely literal. Jesus is actually going to sit on what we call the Davidic throne, and he's going to reign from it for a thousand years, and then we get to reign with him. Now, it also tells us in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. 
and from the lips of Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, that he would literally sit on a throne and rule and that we would get to come with him and be co-heirs. Now remember, we get to be co-heirs not because of how great we are. It's not because of our pedigree. It's not because of the degrees that we've earned. It's not because of how much money we have in our bank account. It's not because of our awesome personality or any of those things. We only get to come and reign and rule with him because we have bowed down to the king of kings. And then he allows his subjects to come with him. Now when we do bow down to the king of kings, he loves to bless us. I think we don't think of God this way. We think of God as that old grumpy man that sits in the sky with a lightning bolt just ready to strike us down. But I don't find that to be consistent with Scripture at all. God has to punish sin, but it does not say that that brings him joy. In fact, what brings him joy is the precious death of one of his saints. He finds no pleasure, no delight, it tells us in the Psalms, in the death of the wicked. But... Because of the fact that God is all holy and all perfect, he has to punish sin. However, because of the fact that he is so gracious and he's so merciful, did you know that you're going to get rewards someday that will never compare to anything? Or that I should say nothing that you get on this earth will ever compare to what you're going to get in heaven. Don't you look forward to that day? I know I do. I'm so glad that God actually wants to bless us. In my house, Sunday's a work day. And that's because I'm a pastor. So we try to take Saturday off and not do too much that has anything to do with work on Saturday. But on Sunday, when we get home from church, our girls would help us vacuum or dust or mop or do meal prep or clean their rooms. And especially when they were younger, Jolene and I would tell them that if you do a good job, you might get to pick a dinner or you might get a special dessert or we might take you to a coffee shop and you can pick your favorite drink. But that turned those mundane, I have to do this chores into, I get to do this chores. Now I bring all of that up because that's actually an illustration of the difference between false religion and cults and biblical Christianity. See, in false religions and cults, you have to do good works if you want to have any opportunity to please God and maybe make it to heaven. Whereas in biblical Christianity, the reason that I serve Jesus, the reason that I fall down on my knees and I worship him and I serve him and I serve others is because I've already found favor with God, simply because he gave it to me, even when I didn't deserve it. I don't know if we recognize this or not, but we don't deserve to be in heaven. We're not getting what we deserve. Are any of y'all glad you don't get what you deserve? I am glad that God is just. And that he paid the penalty for my sin. And therefore, because he did that, I get to go to heaven. I'm glad that God is gracious. I'm glad that God is merciful. But I'm also glad that he doesn't give me what I deserve. The church in Colossae, specifically Paul is writing in Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. He's writing to a group of people where it would have been really hard to be a follower of Jesus. And some of them were probably on the brink of giving up. There's false religion everywhere. There's sexual immorality everywhere. There's liberalism everywhere. I just, I don't know what to do. And here's what Paul says to them. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. 
That means if you're that mom that's changing dirty diapers, picking up Cheerios off the ground, at home homeschooling your kids, you're that dad that just works the daily grind and wonders if things are ever going to change, you're that single person that's thinking, am I ever going to get married and it's such a struggle to honor the Lord with my sex life, you're that only student that stands for Jesus in the midst of a secular campus that says, no matter what anybody else says or no matter what gets taught, I'm going to stand for Jesus, or maybe you're that person that just thinks to yourself, man, I live in a family that doesn't honor and worship Jesus. How do I keep standing for him? Just take heart knowing that as you serve the Lord in any one of those capacities, you have spiritual reward and spiritual blessing awaiting you that nothing on this earth will ever measure up to. Again, that is a reason to celebrate this morning. Okay, I gave you a little break from the mental exercise. You ready to dive back into it? We're going to dive back into some hard stuff. What in the world is the first and second resurrection? Why is there a first and why is there a second? And why does it tell me blessed is he who's, who shares in the first resurrection? What's the blessing of that one? Well, let's talk about those two resurrections briefly. The first resurrection is for believers. The second resurrection is going to be for unbelievers. In the first resurrection, there's actually an order 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 23 tell us that Jesus is the first fruits of the first resurrection. He rose bodily from the dead. And because of that, we can know that as followers of him, we too are going to physically be risen from the dead. We're going to get brand new resurrection bodies. That's going to happen at that event that we've studied called the rapture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18 speak all about those new bodies that we're going to get at the rapture. And then the third part of the first resurrection is talked about in Daniel chapter 12. And that's where tribulation saints and Old Testament saints are going to get raptured at the end of the, of the tribulation. They're going to get their new bodies and are going to get to partake in the millennium. Now, the second resurrection doesn't happen until the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, at the end of the millennium, and that's where unbelievers are going to get their resurrection bodies so that they can then be cast into the lake of fire, where they'll be tormented day and night. Now, we'll talk more about that next week. That's Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, and that will be next week's message. For this week, for this, the last part of this second point, I want to give you a few pieces of encouragement. And here's the encouragement. The second death and the second resurrection has no power over us as believers. In fact, it says that we are going to be priests of God and of Christ. Again, that is literal. We are literally going to get to go and be co-heirs with Christ. Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 through 7, no less than six times says that there is going to be this thousand-year reign of Jesus. When you are studying your Bibles, good Bible study says pay attention to this thing called repetition or the law of double mention. The law of double mention means that when something is mentioned twice or more than twice, the Lord really is trying to get a hold of our attention, get a hold of our minds. Listen to this, he is saying. The scriptures are shouting at us, listen to this. This thousand year reign is going to be literal. What is that rain going to be like? I don't know for sure. What I do know is that according to Daniel 12, some lights are going to shine brighter than others while we're reigning with Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. The millennium is going to be awesome. Heaven's going to be awesome. Heaven is going to be heaven. But there are going to be differing degrees of reward in heaven. Now, when we get to heaven, what are we going to do with those rewards? What are we going to do with those crowns, those jewels that we're given? Well, from what scripture tells us, we're going to lay them right back down at Jesus' feet. 
Those that served him are just going to have more to serve him with when they get to heaven. And what a glorious day that's going to be. I can't wait. I've heard people say to me, well, I am going to serve nobody. I am going to be the master of my own destiny. Remember, everybody's a slave to something. Every person that's ever walked the planet in all of human history is a slave to something. You're either a slave to sin and to Satan and to the things of this world, or you're a slave to Christ. Now again, typically we don't like that term, but if you understand the word doulos, doulos de Christos, or slave of Christ, back in first century Palestine and prior, it's not what we think of when we think of the British slave trades and the atrocities that were committed. Many times people would sell themselves to a family so they could be well taken care of. People today have sold themselves to one of two people. They've either sold themselves to Satan, and Jesus says that makes your father the devil, or they have sold themselves to Christ, and now we have God as our heavenly father. So depending on who you sell yourself to, who you have enslaved yourself to, is is also determinant of who your father is. I don't know about you, but I choose the dad that's going to win. Y'all remember me saying this before, but my dad can beat up your dad. Well, if you guys all have the same father, we're good to go. But when we're talking to the world, hey, you know what? It looks like the world is winning out. Take heart. My dad is going to beat up their dad. That's just the way it's going to be. Sorry, I don't mean to sound facetious or like I'm being an arrogant jerk because it has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with him. But whose dad is bigger? Again, think about this. Who is bigger? Is it actually Jesus or is it the one of this world? Remember, Jesus said, if you belong to me, you belong to the Heavenly Father. If you don't belong to me, Satan is your father. Man, those were fighting words that Jesus used. But praise the Lord, we already know who wins the fight. In fact, what a great segue into the last part of this passage. Look at verses 7 through 10. And when the thousand years are ended, so Satan's in the abyss, Satan will be released from his prison and he'll come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, just to clear up what in the world are Gog and Magog, well, there have been, again, all kinds of weird, funny, kind of crazy interpretations. Let's just let Scripture interpret Scripture. Genesis chapter uh, 10 tells us exactly who Magog is. Magog was the grandson of Noah, and he brought up quite a rebellion against God's people. Seems like from this passage, God is using the analogy of Gog and Magog to say there is going to be a large group of people led by one leader that are going to rebel against God and his people. Before you get too concerned and worried, listen to the rest of the passage. He gathers them all together for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. If we just stop there, this doesn't sound good. The entire beloved city and the saints of the Lord are surrounded. We're doomed. Not really. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. I think this is going to be the shortest war in all of human history. Satan is going to rise up. He's going to bring about this rebellion and... Jesus is going to simply just send down fire from heaven, boom, done. Pretty quick battle. This is our third point, but Satan will return briefly, and he'll revolt, but unsuccessfully, after the thousand years are over. Remember, Satan is a cosmic criminal who's in prison. He's going to go on parole. It's going to be a very short-lived parole, 
But my question is, and maybe you're thinking the same thing, why does God let him out at all? Why release him? Why give him the opportunity? Well, God has a reason for everything. And I want us to take a look at what that reason is. He's actually going to demonstrate three different things. First of all, he's going to demonstrate the wickedness of Satan. We read about that in verses 7 and 8. And there's a reason why God wants Satan's wickedness on display. Remember, for thousands of years of human history, Satan has been parading himself as something that he's not. How does he disguise himself? As an angel of light. How has he been deceiving the nations as an angel of light? Look around and don't forget some of the things that we've been talking about as a church body. The very things that God's word calls heinous when it comes to wickedness and sin, the world now calls good and right. Do you not see the hand of Satan in that, in the deception that is there? The very things that we would never see as being good and as being right and as being something that would actually be beneficial to human beings, that would help humans flourish, we now not only call good and right, but are now being forced to celebrate it. Or you yourself are the one that is looked at as evil. God is going to show the world that these things that Satan has been bringing into our cultures and into our communities as good are actually truly heinous and evil. He's going to demonstrate Satan's wickedness. He's also going to demonstrate the depravity of man. Revelation chapter 20, verse 8. Now remember, when we're in Revelation chapter 20, verse 8, who's been reigning for a thousand years? Jesus. Who's been bound for a thousand years? Satan. So now all of these kids that have been born during these thousand years, and remember, again, it's 12 lifetimes, if I'm doing my math correctly, if you've got an average lifespan of about 80 to 85 years, you've got about 12 lifetimes to bow down and worship Jesus because you're seeing him reign and rule. And yet the kids that are born to the people that enter into the millennium still are going to commit heinous sin. And God is going to use this time to show the absolute depravity and wickedness, not only of Satan, but of mankind as well. And then in verses 9 and 10, it tells us that he's going to demonstrate the justice of hell. Remember, Jesus has been reigning, Satan has been bound, nobody can say the devil made me do it, so now he's going to show people why they actually deserve hell. Remember, again, God didn't originally design hell. God didn't originally design the lake of fire for people. He told us in Matthew chapter 25 that he designed it for Satan and his demons that had rebelled against God. However, God is all holy and God is all just and will not allow any sin into his heaven. Now I want to conclude today with a negative note and a positive note. Here's the negative note. Even though, as we just talked about, mankind had 12 lifetimes during the millennium and perfect conditions with Jesus reigning and ruling, they still rebel against God Almighty. I bring that up because I have heard people say before, if God would just make himself more real, if he would just appear, if he would just bless us more, if he would just take away evil, if he would just wipe out sin, I'd believe in him. And yet during the thousand year reign, what happens? People live way longer. The child can stick its hand in the hole of an asp or a cobra and not be bitten. The lion will lie down with the lamb. Many of the diseases that we know of that were killing people are, are going to be eradicated. And yet through all of that, and by the way, Jesus will have returned and set up his kingdom, set up his rule. In the midst of all of that, people are still going to rebel against the Lord. 
Well, here's the positive note. In the one lifetime that you and I have, that really short lifetime that you and I have, if we're willing to bow our knee to Jesus as Lord and Savior, we get eternal life with him. We get to reign and rule with him for all of eternity because he's that good to us. That is a great reason to celebrate this morning. Now listen, your best life is not now. Your best life is still to come. So I want to encourage you, hang in there, keep serving Jesus, knowing that the best is yet to come, knowing that we're going to get rewards unimaginable, knowing that we're going to get to be in a place in heaven where there is no more sin, there's no more sickness, there's no more disease, there's no more decay, and the final enemy of all, there's no more death, is going to be eradicated. We're going to get, get to enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb. It looks like we're going to get to have pleasures unimaginable for all of eternity. And all of the things that happen to us this side of eternity are just going to simply fade into the background as we get to go walk with Jesus. This isn't some made-up, pie-in-the-sky idea of what I hope happens. We put our faith and our trust in a book that has been proven from Genesis 1 to Revelation chapter 22 to be true through and through. Remember, everything from the changed lives of the disciples to archaeological evidence to manuscript evidence to prophetical evidence to scriptural inerrancy all point to the fact that this book is true. The evidence that we have for the resurrection of Jesus is greater than that of George Washington ever being a president of the United States. That's the type of evidence that we cling to. The evidence for what God's word says about our being created in a literal six days the intricacies and the outworkings of the universe as we take a look at a telescope at the stars and the sky and the universes and the galaxies and the billions and billions of stars that are all in just the right place, all the way down to taking a look through a microscope at the atoms that make up our bodies, the DNA strands that make up who we are, all of that points to the glory and the majesty and the goodness and the graciousness of God. That's the God we serve. There's so much more to say about the Lord, but I only stopped because if I don't, I'm going to pass out. So we're going to stop right now and let's just go to the Lord and praise him for who he is. And then when I'm done, I'm going to lead us in a time of getting ready to take communion together. So let's go to the Lord and remember who he is, remember his goodness, and then I'll get ready to lead us in communion. Father God, we come before you and we are thankful that you are our father, that you are the one Lord, who created us, you are the one who infused us with a soul that will go on for all of eternity somewhere. And Lord, you made clear to us how we can know where our soul will be. If, if we reject the free gift of Jesus that you gave to us, we will spend eternity separated from you in the lake of fire. But Lord Jesus, for those that bow their knee to you, we can know that we will celebrate and be with you forever in heaven. It's because of what we are about to celebrate now at communion that we get to be with you. And Lord, we're so thankful that when there is nothing that we could do to make ourselves right or to cancel the record of debt that we had accrued when it comes to our sin, that Lord Jesus, you came and you canceled that record of debt. And so Lord, it's you that we worship and honor and praise this morning. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray together. Amen. This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. 
subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us.